my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 571. Welcome in. Uh, I imagine this will be a short episode, although I feel like every time I say that, I jinx it. I really have no idea. We're going to talk about the game yesterday. We're going to do a lot of Patreon questions. We've got some updates on NFL news from earlier in the week. Let's jump into topic number one today. Uh, Today is Friday. Yesterday was Thursday. I don't know when you will be listening to this. Probably not till Saturday, given it just takes a while to get a show out. I'm also way later in the, the time zone. Uh, I think I'm actually technically like at the end of the entire world state, basically, by being close to the international date land out here. Anyway, uh, yesterday we had what I would call the first meaningful football game of the year. NFL, college, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, USC played San Jose State last week. There was a game or two uh, in week zero of college football. But this really, for me, was the first game I sat down. I watched the entirety of it. I loved it. It was fun. It wasn't a close football game, but I watched on Thursday night, number 14, Utah, beat Florida 24 to 11. They were up 24 to 3 at one point. It really wasn't a close game, but I I found, I don't know if like 10 weeks from now, this is a game that would draw me in and make me just totally invested the entire time. But this one felt like a meaningful game. It was fun. You had Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreit calling the game, was on ESPN. I loved it. And what we saw was... I think on one hand, an impressive statement win from Utah. And again, the entire game, they had a lead. They were up 24-3 at one point. And then on the other hand, we had an embarrassing, really eye-opening loss for Florida. By the way, again, it was so good to have real football back. It was interesting that ESPN, Kirk Herbstreit, Chris Fowler, did not mention the Pac-12 falling apart one time. They mentioned at the beginning, like, you're watching the Pac-12 on ESPN. That was it. That was the only time the Pac-12 got mentioned. In fact, they had an opportunity where a rivalry between Utah and BYU came up. And in my head, I'm like, oh, they're going to talk about how in the future, BYU and Utah are going to have a budding rivalry because they're both, they will both be in the Big 12. Did not get mentioned. That felt intentional. Like, they went out of their way not to talk about the Pac-12 falling apart. I would imagine... They were instructed not to bring that up, which I find interesting. I don't know why they might have been told. Because here's the thing. If you burn a bridge with the Pac-12, who cares? They're not going to be around after this year. I don't, I don't know why it felt like they were instructed not to mention the Pac-12 falling apart. But they didn't, and it was interesting. What we saw, though, was a Pac-12 school dismantling an SEC program. And I found that really interesting to watch. So, again, it was an impressive win for Utah. An embarrassing loss for Florida, and here's why. Utah was missing a ton of their starters. Their starting quarterback, Cam Rising, didn't play. Their starting center, Johnny Maia, didn't play. Their tight end, Brent Keithy, didn't play. Their defensive tackle, Junior uh, Tafuna, didn't play. Their defensive end, Connor O'Toole, didn't play. Starters everywhere, on both sides of the ball, on the line, on the offensive line and on the defensive line, starters were not playing, and yet somehow Utah dominated up front. How did Utah, a Pac-12 program, a good one, by the way, but how did they dominate an SEC program up front? Nonetheless, Florida. Not great. For uh, At least from the SEC perspective, not great. For Utah, hey, well done. Great job. People stepped up. They played two quarterbacks all night, Utah did. They played Nate Johnson, more of a running quarterback, and Bryson Barnes, the guy who managed the game and did a good job. 
It was pretty cool. Bryson Barnes' first play of the game was a 70-yard bomb for a touchdown on play action. I was like, oh, wow. That's how the game is going to start. All right. Uh, both guys ran for a touchdown. It was awesome, man. Really cool to see two backup quarterbacks step up. Like your second and third string quarterback making plays against an SEC program. I would say Utah, in my opinion, that's kind of a tough schedule. Like Utah, to me, what we saw was, wow. Even with backups, they can hang with the best or I don't know if, I wouldn't call Florida the best, but they can hang with top level competition against great athletes. Can we say that? Can we agree on that maybe? So I walked away impressed with Utah, but their schedule is going to be pretty difficult this year. They play at Baylor next weekend. At one point in their season, they play USC and Oregon back-to-back. They play at USC, then Oregon at home. They play at Oregon State this year, at Washington. It's not like Utah has an t- easy schedule. Like I think there's some tough games in there. Pac-12 opponents, but nonetheless, not an easy schedule for Utah. However, this was encouraging. If you're a Utah fan, I'd be like, hey— we got a shot in every single game we play this year because we just beat an SEC team basically with our hands tied behind our back. It's impressive. You love to see it. Well done. Although, oh, by the way, I didn't even mention this. Their linebacker, Brennan Reed, got knocked out of the game early with a head injury. I, we, I guess concussion's the word. They call it head injury now. Interesting. Um, he left with a suspected head injury. I don't have a follow-up. I don't know if he got a concussion actually or not. But it took him out of the game. So not only were they missing all the starters I listed, they also were missing a linebacker, Brennan Reed, who's a big part of their defense. So totally shorthanded, Utah dominated Florida. I mean, they had five sacks, and two of their starters on the defensive line didn't even play. That's really great for Utah. It's a shameful loss for Florida. Florida was one for 13 on third down. Had nine penalties, a ton of costly mistakes, big Big mistakes in important downs and big moments. Third down, ton of false starts, ton of illegal formation penalties. Like penalties that simply can't happen that are a reflection of your discipline and your coaching staff, quite frankly. They looked out coached by a lot. We had a second-year coach at Florida who I like and I'm rooting for. Um, that would be Billy Napier. I, I don't hate him. I liked what he did at Louisiana Lafayette, his former college before going to Florida. But he was up against Kyle Whittingham, who was going into his 19th year as the Utah head coach and got totally outclassed from a coaching standpoint as far as discipline and guys doing the little things right. I mean, at one point, Florida actually stopped Utah. They forced Utah to punt. It was a great win for the Florida defense. And on the punt return, Florida had the dumbest penalty I've seen in a long time. They had two guys wearing the number three jersey on the field at the same time. That's a penalty Free yards, free first down for Utah that led to a Utah touchdown. Penalties like that simply cannot happen. That's a lack of organization. That's bad coaching. That's just stuff that, from an SEC program with the expectations of Florida, that cannot happen. They looked a little bit out of sync at times. Uh, You know, Florida threw an interception deep in their own territory. That gave Utah the ball first and 10 on the 11-yard line. That led to a touchdown for Utah. Florida missed a field goal. They had a ton of penalties on third down, like false starts over and over again. They would literally be on an important third down. They would make a play, get the first down, and then it would get called back because of an illegal formation. It was countless penalties on third down for Florida. It was embarrassing. It was shameful. To lose to two backup quarterbacks at Utah, I get it. You're at Utah. I've been to Rice-Eccles Stadium um, it's a fun environment. It's loud. I called a game between Washington State and Utah there one time. It was awesome. 
but not a good start to the year for Florida and their second-year head coach, Billy Napier, who at this point, I'm worried he's not going to make it to year three. I also want to mention Graham Mertz. He's the new Florida quarterback. I I don't know how to feel about him. I am rooting for him. We'll say that, right? He came over from, from Wisconsin. He made a lot of mistakes at Wisconsin. I was hoping he would come to Florida and grow. He played okay last night. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff on tape for him to clean up. Really what I'm hoping is that Florida can stay committed to him for a little while. You know, you might get desperate if you think your job's at peril. You might switch quarterbacks, but... I think there's something there with Graham Mertz. He needs to be coached up. What he really needs is confidence and patience, and I don't know that Florida has that. I don't know that they have the patience to allow him to grow like he needs to for them to win, and I don't know that taking him out of the game would instill any kind of confidence in him. So there's kind of a tenuous situation at quarterback for Florida, in my opinion, because you just got to play it right or else you're going to ruin the kid. Uh, You've got a head coach, Billy Napier, who's trying to hold on to his job. I would imagine today... Florida fans are literally saying, we got to fire this guy. This is insane. How can we have nine penalties, mostly procedural penalties, in critical downs? How can we lose to two backup quarterbacks on the road at Utah? By the way, missing a ton of their starters. It's an an embarrassing, shameful loss for Florida. And uh, I, frankly, loved watching it. Not because I liked watching an SEC program unravel, but it was just fun. It was really engaging, a great football game. Uh, But... Still, an embarrassing loss for Florida. And for Utah, I, I, man, when I found out all the starters they had not playing, my initial reaction was, oh, man, dang it. Like, what a what a crappy way to start the year for Utah. Like, you, you're going to lose a game to Florida at home and uh, a game you might have been able to win with your starters, and apparently it didn't matter. They won even without a bunch of their starting players. It speaks to the culture at Utah, speaks to the coaching staff at Utah, and uh, a job well done all around by the Utah program on Thursday night. Now, I want to talk about the Patriots quarterback situation. I talked the other day about how it was surprising they cut both Bailey Zappi and Malik Cunningham, their backup quarterbacks, as well as Trace McSorley, who did not make the practice squad. Um, Bailey Zappi and Malik Cunningham made it through waivers. They were now added to the Patriots practice squad. But what it said to me was the Patriots were unhappy with their backup quarterback situation. They've got Mac Jones, their starter. And they wanted something better as their backup quarterback, at least something with potential to be better. Well, they couldn't really find a veteran quarterback. There weren't a lot of guys available. They ended up signing and claiming Matt Corral off of waivers from Carolina. Matt Corral was a third-round pick in 2022 for the Panthers, played college football at Ole Miss. Uh, It just feels like the Patriots saying, YOLO, we're going to try something different here. Bailey Zappi's got limited potential. Malik Cunningham... I think actually has potential, but he's a project for sure, has a lot of room to grow and develop as a quarterback. And they were saying, well, it can't be worse than the quarterbacks we currently have behind Mac Jones. Let's try something different. And uh, I'm rooting for Malik Cunningham. Matt Corral feels desperate. Like they, I, I heard they wanted a veteran quarterback and they couldn't really get their hands on one. So it's interesting, man. Matt Corral, that's the new backup in New England. And if he has to play this year, He's got a long road. He's got to learn the playbook. He's got, a, I think he's kind of got an uphill battle, frankly, in New England. And I would imagine they're happy, I guess, to have a young guy who's got potential for the future in New England. But I also would imagine New England was hoping for a better backup quarterback than they were able to get from the waiver wire than Matt Corral. Matt Corral, you're like, yeah, okay, he can run, I guess. 
Well, you know, we don't really know what he can do. He hasn't played very much. And when he has played a little bit here and there, it hasn't been great. So, um, yeah, Matt Corral. Not sure what to make of that, but it's interesting. And uh, we will see if he's forced into action this year. Is that really the backup quarterback the Patriots want? Or would they end up... if Like, if Mac Jones gets hurt, I would imagine they activate Bailey Zappi, put him on the roster, the, the 53. Uh, and then would they play Bailey Zappi or... Matt Corral. I'm not sure, but certainly they didn't find a veteran backup like it was reported they wanted when they got rid of Malik Cunningham and Bailey Zappi. And they just got rid of, moved them off the, they put them on the waiver wire, they passed their waivers. Now those guys are on the practice squad. I want to talk about a quarterback who I said a couple episodes ago, this guy is a new kid on the block worth paying attention to. Thursday night, last night for me, Arizona State beat Southern Utah 24-21. to Not a great victory. Not a game like a Division I program playing a smaller school. You would hope they would have, you know, a Power 5 conference, whatever that means anymore. You would hope they would dominate a school like Southern Utah. They didn't exactly dominate the one by three points, but a win is a win. And what I thought was cool from this game was the Arizona State true freshman starting quarterback, Jaden Rashada. He was 18 for 31 passing. Had 236 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. I'm not sure if Jaden Rashada is going to play his entire year, entire career, excuse me, at Arizona State. I don't know if he's going to play four or five years at Arizona State, or I could see him having a great freshman year, maybe a good sophomore year, then moving on to like an Alabama, an Ole Miss, an LSU, a program that wants a transfer quarterback who can help them win now. But what I think is interesting about Jaden Rashada, he was a highly touted recruit. Pat could have gone to pretty much any school he wanted to. I think he chose Arizona State because it was a school he felt like he could play at immediately as a true freshman. He achieved that. It's interesting. He's notable. He's really talented. He's six foot four, got a great arm, can move pretty well. Had a you know, really interesting and intriguing first start in college football. And he's got to pay attention to. Again, if he does really well, his freshman, maybe even his sophomore year, I could see him moving on to a Notre Dame or an LSU or a quarterback-needy, high-level program in college football. But it's really going to be interesting to pay attention to uh, Jaden Rashada in the next year or two as he develops and grows as a young quarterback at Arizona State with a really good young head coach, Kenny Dillingham. So pay attention. Jaden Rashada is the name. Keep your eye on him at Arizona State. Now, I want to ask kind of an open question here. Um, I haven't listened back to what I said. And some of the stuff I said the other day, I still feel good about. Um, but upon reflection, I have a, a question to ask. Feel free to write in and let me know. Was I too harsh on Matthew Stafford, the Rams quarterback, the other day? Last episode, I made fun of him. I literally titled the episode, Matthew Stafford has amazing people skills. And I kind of made fun of him for... Uh, you know, the cell phone debacle where he's having a hard time connecting with the younger players and his wife went on a podcast, her podcast, I guess, not going on a podcast. She did her podcast and talked about how, you know, Matthew Stafford's struggling con to connect with the young guys. I criticized him for that. To me, let me justify my actions a little bit uh, before I, I guess, get into my concerns with how I was, uh, how I portrayed myself, I guess, or how I came across. Um, to me, I, I feel like the... LA Rams are heading towards a bad year. We just learned that Cooper Cup, their number one receiver, might not even play week one. He's dealing with a hamstring injury, still recovering. 
Um, you know, I don't know that the Rams are going to do well this year. And to me, I still think it might have been Kelly Stafford, Matthew Stafford's wife, kind of laying the foundation for, hey, if things don't go well this year because they got a lot of young guys or I think that was the intention. I don't think she meant to make her husband look bad. Or even if she did, she said, hey, this is a bad look for Matthew, but it might be better than him getting criticized and torn apart for being a bad quarterback if they have a bad year. I said something too. People didn't like this, but I think it's true. We saw the Detroit Lions try over and over again to rebuild around Matthew Stafford. It didn't work. Is it possible? I didn't say this, but here's what I guess what I was inferring to. Is it possible Matthew Stafford doesn't have the leadership skills to be a part of a true rebuild? He went to the Rams and they were a loaded football team ready to win a Super Bowl now. You plug him in, he played well, they won a Super Bowl. But it's a different level of leadership required to be involved in a total rebuild with a bunch of young guys, a bunch of unproven players, and maybe, just saying out loud, there's a possibility he doesn't have the leadership to pull that off. He tried a lot and failed in Detroit. I'm not real confident he can do well in L.A. doing that. I think it was a bad look for Matthew Stafford, that story coming out. He can't connect with the young teammates. But really, my favorite thing about this was I just love the idea, whether it's a joke or not, that Matthew Stafford is terrified of a cell phone. Like, you know, I was, you know, this thing. He goes, ah, a cell phone. Oh, no. And he's like, I was going to talk to Greg, but then Greg pulled out a cell phone and I just shut down. I couldn't have a conversation because I just, I'm so afraid. You guys know how afraid I am of cell phones. I love that idea of a guy. It's a ridiculous thought. But his wife kind of made it sound like, a guy pulls out a cell phone and I, I just can't talk to him. I, I freak out. It's a silly thought. It's, it's ridiculous. But um, I, I just love that image in my head. It's not really accurate, but it's funny to think about, hey, a guy, a veteran quarterback, sees young guys on the phone and breaks down into a nervous wreck. Like, I don't know how to introduce myself. I don't know how to talk to him. How do I connect with him? He's on his phone. His phone isn't, he, I, yeah, it's like, just approach him. Just say hi. Hi, I'm Matthew. We don't know what's happening in the locker room. I did say that the other day. I, I do feel good about that. I said multiple times, we don't know what's going on in the locker room. I tried to say what I would do if I was in that locker room. I would say, hey, you know, um, guys, there's a lot of young faces in here, a lot of new faces, people I don't know or recognize. I'm going to try to get to know you the best I can. Please be patient with me. Like in a locker room, Get up in front of everybody, say that. Be totally honest about that. I don't know why you couldn't approach it that way, and maybe he has. This is all speculation. We don't know what's going on there. But I, I still stand by that story coming out. Matthew Stafford is struggling to connect with the young guys in the locker room. Reading the story, then hearing what his wife said on the podcast, I think it's a bad look for Matthew Stafford. I stand by that. But as I sat on it, I went to the beach yesterday, drove around the island, and I'm, I'm wondering in my head, did I come across as mean? But that's definitely never my intention. I didn't like that as I thought about what I said, I might have sounded like a mean person, and that's just not where my heart is. So I don't know. I just wanted to do kind of a follow-up, revisit this idea. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've revisited enough. I, I've said my piece once again. Uh, I think it's a bad look. I like that idea. A cell phone? Ah, what do I do? Greg has a cell phone. How am I supposed to talk to him? You just go up and say hi. Um, but jokes aside, I, I get I I worry that my tone in that topic was really harsh and really mean, and that just isn't my heart. Um, so I don't know. Write in. Let me know. I, I'm not trying to backtrack. That's not my goal either. But I definitely I wanted to 
follow up a little bit and just, you know, upon reflection, like, was I mean there? I don't know, but let me know. Uh, before we get into Patreon questions today, I want to mention Hard Knocks episode four was on Tuesday. I just watched it today. Um, you know, it's the more Hard Knocks I watch, the more I'm like, do I need this? Not really. Um, episode one was so enlightening. You learned so much and it's just been kind of downhill since then. Nothing has quite reached the peak of episode one with Aaron Rodgers and, um, you know, it's like, okay, it's fine. It's good. Voice of God. That was pretty cool. Um, what stood out from episode four was Xavier Gibson and Jason Brownlee, two Jets receivers who were undrafted free agents, rookies. Xavier Gibson reminds me of Kevin Hart. His kind of smile, his attitude, he's the quick return guy who's, uh, Jason Brownlee's his physical force of nature, you know, massive dude, crazy good hands. Jason Brownlee's this big athlete and Xavier Gibson's a, a short, funny guy, great return man. I hope both make the team, although I hate that Hard Knocks introduces me to these awesome young guys, and then inevitably some of them get cut, and you got to say goodbye to them, and that's really sad and difficult. Um, I would imagine next episode will be painful, episode five, the final episode of Hard Knocks Jets, as guys get cut and maybe or maybe don't make the team. Um, but all in all, Hard Knocks after episode one hasn't been that compelling, and I'll try it next year, I'm sure, but I'm not going to go out of my way to cover it or watch it. I, I just, I'll probably cover episode one and then acknowledge that if I don't watch after episode one, I'm probably not missing very much. So if you're a Jets fan, you're probably enjoying it, but I don't know that it's the best use of my time with an hour free in my life. I'm like, eh, I could cut this. This isn't that important. Um, one thing worth noting, I just regularly over and over again, I keep feeling this way as I watch Jets hard knocks is that. I absolutely love the Jets defensive coordinator, Jeff Ulbrich, not just because he played college football at, uh, at, at Hawaii, excuse me, almost at Ohio State for some reason. At Hawaii, he, he was in Manoa, went to college there. That's pretty cool. But it's not the Hawaii connection. It's the way he conducts himself and the way he talks to people. And he roots for Zach Wilson. He seems like a good dude, like just a guy that I, I would love to play for and be around. His relationship with Robert Saul is really interesting. Jeff Ulbrich is a guy... You know, he kind of like Steve Wilkes, the, the former defensive coordinator of Carolina, who was interim coach for a while there. Because the NFL is just shifting demographically towards the offensive side of the football. I don't know if demographic was the right word there. But regardless, we're seeing young coaches that are hired tend to be offensive head coaches to work with a quarterback. I think for good reason, because if you get a great offensive coordinator working with a quarterback, he's going to leave your football team. And that's not great. But Jeff Ulbrich, to me, looks like head coach material. I, I don't know if he wants that position. I don't know if he would get hired because he's a defensive coach. But, man, I just love the guy. Jeff Ulbrich is awesome. And he gave this speech uh, before the final preseason game for the Jets saying, like, empty the tank. You know, if you get cut because you weren't good enough, that sucks, but you can sleep at night. But if you get cut because you didn't give everything you had in the preseason games, that's a problem. You will not be able to sleep at night. You'll struggle knowing you didn't do your best. And so, I don't know, man. Jeff Ulbrich, he's a compelling man. I really like him. Rooting for him. And uh, I don't know if he'll ever get hired as a head coach, but he does come across to me like head coach material. The way he approaches the game, the way he talks to people. His communication skills are phenomenal. And uh, it comes through, uh, through hard knocks. I really, really like, really like Jeff Ulbrich the Jets defensive coordinator. 
All right, let's answer some questions from Patreon. If you want to support the show, please do go to patreon.com slash Zach Shomler, patreon.com slash Zach Shomler. Currently, we're thinking about raising prices, but currently it's a dollar a month. If you want to support the show, please do. You can donate more if you want to. It literally pays my rent, so support me on Patreon. It's a huge deal. It gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. Now, I do not guarantee to read your question on the show. My only guarantee is I look at every single write-in with my eyeballs and I pick the top couple to read on the show. Question number one today is from Brandon. Brandon says, hello, Zach and his other organs who don't get enough credit. <laughs> Not just my eyeballs, huh? I like that. Are eyes organs? They must be, but I never thought about that before. What a horrifying thought. I don't know. Um, Brandon says, you talked about doing a fantasy league this year. And I have two fantasy questions for you. If you had the number one pick, who are you taking and who do you think some of the bigger mid to late fantasy draft steals are? Um, I didn't have the number one pick. Let's, let me be clear, Brandon. I don't really know what I'm doing with fantasy football. I'm going to try it this year. I feel intimidated because, again, there's a difference between real football and fantasy football. The things that make you a good fantasy player are not the things that necessarily make you just a good football player in general that I would want on my football team. I almost kind of worry I'm corrupting my brain by paying attention to fantasy football. However, I've got a 16-team league. In the draft this year, I had the 14th pick, so all the good players were gone by the time I drafted. It felt wrong, too. I'm the commissioner to, like, make a league, then make myself the number one pick. That would have been really douchey and wrong, so I didn't do that. Um, I drafted. You ask about some guys who were steals. First of all, if I had the number one pick, I think you want a running back. I mean, you, it doesn't make sense to draft a quarterback in the first round. You want a running back who's going to have high productivity, who can probably catch passes out of the backfield and run the ball well so that you get both rushing and receiving yards and more opportunities for touchdowns, catching and running. Um, I got exactly that. I'm going to really, the way I'm going to answer your question, Brandon, I'm going to talk about a couple steals in the draft. I drafted Calvin Ridley and then Jameer Gibbs in the, with my first two picks. And I think Jameer Gibbs maybe steal the draft. He could be, he's a rookie, which I think is part of why people stayed away from him. Yeah, they don't know what he can do, but man, I think he's very similar to Christian McCaffrey, who was the number one pick in my league this year. He can catch, he can run. He's going to be the entire offense. I think the focal point of their offense, at least in Detroit. And they've got a great offensive line against weaker defenses in their division. I think that pick, the Jameer Gibbs pick, could win me my league. Like if there's any pick that's going to pan out really well, it's that one. Calvin Ridley was another one. Didn't play last year, was on, was suspended. I think he fell in the draft because people that play fantasy don't know what he can do. He's going to be phenomenal with Trevor Lawrence. I think that's a steal of a pick as well. Um, I did a bad thing. I drafted Deshaun Watson, but that's a quarterback who can run and throw. And last time he played was one of the better fantasy players in the league. So I think I got a bunch of steals, quite frankly, with Deshaun Watson, Boo, Jameer Gibbs, Calvin Ridley. Um, you know, uh, my number two running back is kind of the weak point of my football team, but you know, that's Isaiah Pacheco, the, the chiefs running back. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I think as far as getting a couple players as for a guy drafting at the end of the draft, the 14th pick to get Calvin Ridley, then Jameer Gibbs, that's a good job. That's a job well done. And two players are going to be very productive for me. And, uh, I'm banking on them being a steal. Quite frankly, I also drafted a tight end, which is I've learned something you don't want to do, but I didn't want to read books about how to do fantasy football. I wanted to play off my instincts and then go from there. 
People clowned on me. I drafted Dalton Kincaid, a rookie tight end out of uh, Buffalo. And that's a player I watched a lot in college. I love him. I think he's going to be the second most productive receiver in Buffalo behind Stephon Diggs this year. And that's another one that people didn't draft him because he's a rookie. They don't really know what he can do. He doesn't have a history of having fantasy points because he didn't play in the NFL last year. But man, I think he could be a steal for me and my team. Dalton Kincaid, Jameer Gibbs, Calvin Ridley, Deshaun Watson. Odell Beckham Jr. is another one I drafted that it's a dark horse, right? No one expects him to be a great player, but last time he played was incredible for the Rams. And so, um, you know, I just, I took a lot of risks and big swings with my draft picks, but I think all of them, if they work out, I'm going to look like a genius. And so anyone criticizing my team, part of it is, I don't think any team in my league is totally stacked because there's 16 total teams. Everyone's drafting. All the good players are very evenly spread out. But um, certainly I think every player I drafted has potential to be really, really good for my fantasy team. Lionheart writes, it, writes in. Lionheart says, hey, Zach lantern I like that one. Oh, he says, uh, Zach lantern with market quarterback saturation. Oh, no, that's not part of his write-in. Part of his salutation, Zach Lantern is his salutation. Now, his question starts, there should be maybe better punctuation, although he has a comma, so I just messed it up. Lionheart says, with quarterback mar- market saturation, heard it from you first, becoming an ever-increasing problem in the NFL, and NIL money now being available at the college level, do you think college quarterbacks will choose to stay in college a year or two longer, even if they are NFL-ready, in hopes of being drafted higher and a more quarterback-needy market. Um, Man, here's what I... I don't know. I'm going to indirectly answer your question and then eventually get to the answer, okay? So there is no reason to leave college early if you're just looking for money, a la Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel left Texas A&M after two years of starting quarterback there in pursuit of getting first-round quarterback money. He probably would have stayed in college all four years with the NIL rules now because he would have made tons and tons of money playing quarterback for Texas A&M that he couldn't get paid back in the day. I think now, because you can make good money, like very good money as a college football quarterback, I think you stay until you're ready to go to the NFL. And once you're ready, you feel confident, good in your skills, then, yeah, you're going to see players leave. But I think I think 100% people are going to stay in college longer simply because the opportunity to make money is there and you can enjoy it. You can be the man. You can play high-level football and have a good time. Uh, I think the incentive to leave college early at the quarterback position, running back, lineman, those are different positions where you've got a ticking time clock that is your body and your, its availability to play football. So if you're a quarterback, you don't get hit that much. Life's pretty good. You're making a lot of money. Why would you leave college football early unless you are guaranteed to be a top pick? Now, uh, and by the way, these are quarterbacks like Sam Hartman, Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr. Quarterbacks who are entering, I mean, years of, they've had years of time in college football. This is the fifth year that Bo Nix will be a starting quarterback in college football. And he's staying because he's got an opportunity to boost his draft stock to be an even higher draft pick. And life's good. He's got NAL money at Oregon. He can sign sponsorships and got a young family there in Eugene. Um, the one thing I don't think it's going to happen, Linehart, you mentioned, would people stay simply because of the quarterback market saturation? Would they stay because there's nowhere for them to go? No. I think you go when you're ready and when you're done in college. 
But I think the time, the answer, are you done in college, is going to get pushed back farther and farther because guys can make money more and more in college playing quarterback. Um, so, again, no one's leaving college because of the money. But no one's going to look around and go, you know, I just don't see a spot for me in the NFL. They're going to say, I see an opportunity. I'm ready. I'm going to go. Um, so I don't think people are going to stay because of quarterback market saturation. That's just an inevitability that we're going to deal with soon. But uh, I do think quarterbacks in general are going to stay longer because of NIL money, which is good for college football. You're going to have more high-level quarterbacks throughout college that are staying and making games more interesting. So um, that's my answer, Lionheart. Hope you like it. Davis writes in. Davis says, Zach, when the Colts drafted Anthony Richardson, I heard things like he's a project quarterback or he won't play until like three more years uh, or should have they should have drafted Will Levis. Do you see the Colts regret choosing Anthony Richardson over Will Levis ever? Watching the games, Levis and Richardson are in. Anthony Richardson had a high incompletion ratio during the preseason, but at least he isn't boring. Um, yeah, so Will Levis didn't play a lot during the preseason, first of all. And I believe Anthony Richardson is a much, much, much better prospect than Will Levis. Better arm, can run the ball better, more potential. I think he's just all around a, a more capable quarterback than Will Levis. And it is interesting. Will Levis is in the same division, the AFC South, as Anthony Richardson. So uh, if he ever does become the starter in Tennessee, Colts fans are going to see Will Levis twice a year. Um, I think there's going to be no regrets. I think the Colts are going to be really glad they drafted Anthony Richardson, a capable quarterback and a perfect offense for him. I, I, I look, give it four years before you, if he struggles this year, be patient. I've said many times, he's more like Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming, where he might throw more interceptions this year than he does touchdowns. But look where Josh Allen is now. And man, Shane Steichen's an awesome, awesome offensive coach, coaching Anthony Richardson. He's going to get him right. And so, if anything, Houston drafted C.J. Stroud second overall and let Anthony Richardson fall to their division rival, the Colts. If anything, Houston might regret passing on Anthony Richardson for C.J. Stroud, quite frankly. I think that's how good... That's how good Anthony Richardson could be. It reminds me of the Dolphins drafting Tua over Justin Herbert. A move that they could go back in time and switch, they would do in a heartbeat. So, um, not that C.J. Stroud can't be a good player. Not that Tua can't be a good player. But a generational talent was drafted after that player. And so, oh man, it's, it's really interesting. You've got in the AFC South, Trevor Lawrence, a second, I guess a third-year quarterback. You've got three rookie quarterbacks, Will Levis. C.J. Stroud and Anthony Richardson all in Houston, Indy, and uh, Tennessee. Will Levis is the one I'm not sure is ever going to become a, a starting franchise quarterback, quite frankly. But time will tell. We will find out. I do not believe the Colts are ever going to regret drafting Anthony Richardson. Again, I think it's the opposite. I think Houston might regret not drafting him and letting him fall to a team they got to play twice a year, every year. Give me one second. got to clear my throat. All right, Matthew writes in. Matthew says, Hi, Zach. I've been a long-time listener, but this is my first time writing in. Honestly, I was weirdly excited to see the return of the plain black t-shirt for some reason. One of my favorite tangents was back when you stated you would only ever wear black t-shirts on the show. Oh, how things change. 
This question might be better suited for a ZSD episode, but I don't know when that's going to be coming back, and it is sports-related, so nonetheless, here's my question. One moment in time that has always stuck out to me was your original take on Justin Herbert and how you, in spite of local backlash, thought he wouldn't work out. And I'm sure that his success has changed the way you reevaluate quarterbacks skill-wise. What was always more interesting to me was how you, the human Zach, dealt with the whiplash of the moment. I remember it was something that something that you would vaguely reference, but it was always felt to me like there was more there as even at the time, the cadence of the show changed. Now that time has hopefully removed you from that moment, how did you feel and how has it affected you and the way you formulate your takes? Sorry if this question is too personal. I totally understand uh, if you don't want to answer it. But as a viewer, this has always been one of the most interesting arcs or inside baseball moments of the show. Much love. Hope you're doing well. Matthew, thank you for the write-in. Uh, I own 12 black shirts. Literally in my personal life, it's all everywhere. Uh, the only time I wear a non-black shirt, actually, that's not true. I've got long sleeve navy that are basically black, but navy dark blue shirts that are like mesh and good for being in the sun. Uh, and then the only other time I wear a non-black, one of these shirts I'm wearing right now, is on the show. Sometimes I wear the party shirt, the little party Hawaiian shirt. That's it, man. I've got one more Hawaiian shirt I might wear, but I, I hate I hate pit stains, man. And so I, if a shirt is either uncomfortable or makes me have pit stains, I just don't wear it. I don't like it. It's not my thing. I like like feeling comfortable is everything to me. Uh, I I worry that's a bit of tism. To be totally honest, like that is part of uh, that thing uh, that I just said. I'm not going to say it again. Uh, is having a sensitivity to the clothing you wear, and I'm like ah, that, that kind of checks out. Um, Let's talk about the Justin Herbert thing. So I, I thought he was going to be, I thought he was a bad draft pick or something like that. I don't remember exactly what I said. Um, I don't want to make it sound worse than it was, but I, I was a big believer in Jalen Hurts and thought he was going to be better than Herbert. And, uh, you know, I, I look back, I saw a lot of bad stuff on tape watching Justin Herbert. And I think we know now part of that was because he had not great coaching at Oregon and I watched him miss a lot of like really easy throws over and over again at Oregon. And I was like, how do you miss a five yard out and expect to be a top five pick in the NFL draft? And I guess he was, and he was sixth overall. Um, but man, um, I wasn't a huge fan. And I grew up in the Northwest. All my friends and family are Oregon fans. Even one of my best friends' cousins are like neighbors with the Herberts. And they did not like what I said about Justin Herbert. And I got a lot of crap for it. Um, I maintain I saw some stuff on film that concerned me, but I've learned since then, A, potential is more important, I think, than your overall finished product. Like if you are struggling in college with certain things, you can go to the NFL and get better. We saw Josh Allen do that. We saw Justin Herbert do that. So that moment with Justin Herbert did totally change the way I view quarterbacks in the draft. I mean, again, I, I think that I used to view quarterbacks as a finished product, and now I see them as, hey, this young guy with potential can go to the NFL, get great coaching, also not have to go to class anymore spend all his time on football and get way better because we saw that with Herbert. We saw that with Josh Allen. I think we're going to see that with Anthony Richardson. So potential is really valuable and coaching is getting better and better in football in general. Um, I, I, I go back still. Herbert missed a lot of easy throws in college though. I felt like there were years where he made the same mistake over and over again and didn't get better. I don't know what that's about. It could be coaching. Could be he was just, he was, a, I think, a biology major. Like, that's a really tough major. And so busy with school and 
Now that football is his full focus, he's better. I don't know exactly what happened there, but it did change the way I view quarterbacks in the draft. How did it affect me as a person, this um, this prediction I made being totally wrong? Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's not fun getting a ton of hate. Um, getting criticism as part of the job. Uh, I probably was worried to hurt my credibility, to be honest. And all you can do is admit you're wrong. Like, that's that's literally... Um, that's all you can do. And when you're wrong about something like that, very publicly, you you have to admit it. You have to own it. Um, I'm not perfect. I mean, I even in my real life, I, I probably am as someone who comes across as a little too, like, I think I know everything. That's never my heart. Um, I try to check myself. Although, also, a lot of things in my life I really think deeply about. And I, I am very calculated and careful and very uh, particular for a reason. Um, I don't know, man. Um Certainly, me being negative on Justin Herbert, then watching him become an NFL superstar, it knocked down my ego. But I also don't ever root against anybody. Like, I was happy to see Justin Herbert do well. Um, and I think that's something very important, is I make predictions and I, I share what I think and what I believe, but I'm never rooting for a player to fail. And so, as Herbert did better and better, making me look worse and worse, I was actually happy for Justin Herbert. And I think people thought that because I predicted him, like I, I try to disconnect my predictions from me as a human. And uh, I never root against a person in any sport or any level. I just want to see people do well. Um, I, one thing I, I guess I never really get credit for is I was, I nailed it with Jalen Hurts. I really believed in Jalen Hurts on that draft class. He's now, uh, what, like the highest paid quarterback in NFL, something like that. Took his team to the Super Bowl last year. Jalen Hurts, I think I was right about, and that gets totally left behind. People hate you for the things you get wrong about, you're wrong about, and th- people, I feel like, don't give credit for things you're right about. Um, but that was a tough moment in my career, to be totally honest. Being dead wrong, having to just take it on the chin and own it. Um, you know, I, I just, I maintain, I always try to give everyone a fair chance, and I'm always willing to change my mind. I wish people were a bit kinder, um, and how they give me feedback, but that's part of this job and, uh, commenters are just what they are. So I don't know, man. Um, how did I handle it as a person? I mean, I was never like, I need to go to therapy. It's so brutal. It really didn't affect me as much as maybe it, you thought, Matthew, given your write-in, but, um, certainly it was, it wasn't fun to get hated on. It wasn't fun to get made fun of publicly. Um, but it was fun to watch Justin Herbert do well, believe it or not. And so um, it's a weird spot, like where you you can make a prediction, but also root against that prediction, right? I, I hope I'm wrong when I come down on a player and say they're going to be garbage or say this prediction is going to happen. Like I, I had the Cardinals having a horrible year this year. I'd love to be wrong, but I watch videos of Jonathan Gannon saying goofy ass stuff in team meetings. And I'm like, this is really cringy. And they don't have their starting quarterback, and there's a lot of stuff wrong in Arizona. Right now, the thing that if the Cardinals are really good, I'm going to get obliterated. The same way I was obliterated when Justin Herbert was good, but I tell you what I see. And what I see is a Cardinals team careening off a cliff. It's not good what's happening there. And I, Cardinals fans are so mad at me. And I said they were going to 1-16, and people are like, they're going to they're gonna win five games. I'm like, you're really fighting with me about four victories? They're not a good football team. And I don't know, man. I, I just don't know what to make of it. We'll see. Um, but it's 
I think under the surface, what's always going on is a fear that I'm going to lose my career, right? I'm I'm always afraid that everyone's going to hate me and stop watching and stop listening. Uh, And that's just probably the underlying fear. Anytime I get something wrong is, oh, no, is this the one that is going to cause everyone to hate me and never watch ever again? I I don't know. Um, So I try to approach with humility and, um, you know, Matthew, I hope I answered your question. That's what Zach the human feels about watching Justin Herbert do well. But I'm happier with the guy, man. I think that I I can't be more clear. I never, ever, ever root against another human doing well. If someone's doing well, I'm happy for them. I want to see people do well, even when I predict that they won't. All right, we've got four questions about Trey Lance. And instead of cutting them or trying to mix them all together, I'm just going to answer all four and talk about Trey Lance a lot here. So uh, I'm going to read two back-to-back, though. First of all, Brandon writes in, if I can find it. Um, Brandon says, what's up, Zach? Oh, no, no. He says, what's up, a Zach on Titan? I love that, the Attack on Titan reference. Brandon says, what's up, a Zach on Titan? Now that Trey Lance is a cowboy, do you see him being a long-term investment investment or a short-term backup? How short or long of a leash do you think Dak is on with a fear of being benched for Trey Lance? Love your podcast, man. You're doing great. To follow up on that, Richmond writes in. Richmond says, salutations, Zach's sight spheres. Sight spheres. Salutations, Zach's sight spheres. That is a tough one. That's a tongue twister right there. Uh, Richmond says, I've been thinking, and to me, it seems the most likely reason behind Dallas trading for Trey Lance is to gain leverage in contract negotiations with Dak Prescott. Presumably, Jerry Jones wants to stick with Dak. Otherwise, he would have gotten whoever he wanted instead of paying Dak as much as he gets. But now he can afford to risk low-ball offers relative to what Dak has been making. With the reasoning of, you're getting older and you've been banged up, we've got a successor on the roster and such. Is this a reasonable assumption or am I reading something out of nothing? Uh, Richmond, Brandon, let's be very clear. Dak Prescott has no reason to ever be threatened by Trey Lance. Right now... Trey Lance isn't even the backup quarterback in Dallas. He's the third string quarterback behind Cooper Rush. And Trey Lance has been, here's what I saw during the preseason. Literally, he struggles to throw a spiral, right? He's not a threat to Dak. The game is moving too fast for him. His timing and accuracy are nowhere near an NFL level. Trey Lance is so far from an NFL starter that there's no way he could possibly be a threat to Dak Prescott. So no, Richmond, Brandon, I don't see Dak or Jerry. None of them are intimidated or think that Trey Lance anytime soon is coming for Dak Prescott's job. It's just not a realistic fear to have. Um, Now, maybe five years from now, it's a different conversation, but right now, there's no way. Optimistic Cyclone fan writes in about Trey Lance and says, hey, Zach, what do you think of Trey Lance? uh, What do you think of the Trey Lance trade to Dallas? It's interesting on two fronts. First of all, it's the Niners giving up on a player they invested three first-round picks in and stuck with, formerly, Mr. Irrelevant. Side note, I'm so excited for Brock Purdy to show last year wasn't a fluke. Secondly, Dallas taking a chance on a former high draft pick. Does this change the quarterback dynamic in Dallas? Is this a vote of no confidence in Dak? Or is Dallas getting a high-quality backup? Um... Yeah, it's, it's really interesting for the 49ers. They gave up on him. But I think part of that is Trey Lance checked out of San Francisco. Didn't want to be there anymore. I'm a third-string quarterback. I failed at my mission. I was drafted to be the savior here. 
he actually reportedly apologized to the 49ers, which is weird and sad. Um, Trey Lance needed out of San Francisco. The pressure of expectations in San Francisco, I think, were really hard for him, especially when you're not living up to them. And when you're getting outplayed by Mr. Irrelevant, Brock Purdy, it's brutal. And I think the best thing he could do is just get a change of scenery. So because of the way things went down, I mean, man, I'd love to see the alternate realities of San Francisco where he doesn't get hurt his rookie year, doesn't get hurt year two. We might see Trey Lance in another timeline is probably the starting quarterback today in San Francisco where things go differently, but they didn't go differently. He missed a lot of practice as a rookie because he hurt, got hurt. He missed all of last year because he got hurt. Then in that time, he was out of, out of the mix. Other players moved in and took his spot. And so, and because he was hurt and not practicing, he didn't get valuable reps to grow as a player. So, man, I, I really think that in the, what's the, I, I watched Flash the other day. There's infinite universes out there. If you could go to a different timeline, there probably is one where Trey Lance worked out and Brock Purdy wasn't drafted by the 49ers and maybe never becomes what he is. I mean, we really are in maybe a unique timeline. Things had to go very uniquely for them to end up the way they are in San Francisco with Trey Lance. But uh, in this timeline and the way things worked out here, I don't know that it was a situation Trey Lance could recover from by the reps he missed out on, the players taking his... You know, his job, playing better than him, not living up to expectations psychologically can really mess with you. So uh, I think it makes sense the 49ers gave up on him because it just wasn't going to go their way anymore with Trey Lance. Now, what is Trey Lance to Dallas? What can he become for the Cowboys? Um, you know, Dak Prescott's busy winning games, and so is the coaching staff in Dallas. Um, making a trade for Trey Lance feels more like a pet project for Jerry Jones, where he's like, we got this young guy who's got a lot of potential, who is at one point a top five pick, and he's a project, but let's just have him on a roster. He can sit, he can learn, he can ask questions, he can watch film, and maybe we got something here. But it's a shot in the dark for Dallas. I mean, he's not a player that's going to make an impact anytime soon, in my opinion. He's a third-string quarterback, and so that cannot be forgotten. A, how far he is from being a starter, and B, that the Cowboys are busy trying to win games right now, not to help a young quarterback. Like, Chicago, Atlanta, Indy, Houston, Carolina. These are all teams with a young quarterback that their focus is not only trying to win, but also developing the young quarterback they drafted early in the draft process. Um, Dallas is busy trying to win. Their number one priority, unlike Houston, unlike Indy, unlike Carolina, unlike Washington with Sam Howell, unlike Atlanta with Desmond Ritter, the number one priority in Dallas is has nothing to do with Trey Lance. And so, on one hand, he's going to be a background story, which probably is good for him, but it also means he may not get as attentive of coaching. I'm not sure what to make of it. But what I will say is to not have the burden of expectations is really going to help Trey Lance in Dallas. And so, it's a story where we just got to wait and see what happens. Uh, Joe writes in and says, What's up, Zach Prescott? Like that one. Speaking of Dak, where do you stand on the Trey Lance trade? I heard someone I met that was on the training staff at North Dakota say he's a very stand-up family man and that his ankle injury bothered him a lot mentally. I know you've always appreciated that perspective. So I wanted to see where you stand now that he has time to sit and potentially develop as a passer. He could be completely screwed and maybe he's bagging groceries uh, in a month. But to me, anything is possible here. 
Thank you to uh, your eyeballs for reading all these words, and I wish you the best, man. I, and I wish the best for you, man, is what he says. Gosh, I am killing it reading today, you guys. I'm such a good... Who, who gave me this job of reading things out loud? Oh, I did. Why did I do that to myself? I have no idea. Um, family man. That's what someone said about Trey Lance from college. What does that mean? He didn't have a family in college. He's a 19-year-old kid. Um, also, have you seen the strip club video? I don't know. I, I like family man. That's a meaningless comment to me. Um, definitely, Trey Lance was injured a lot in San Francisco. It, it affected his confidence. There was all that pressure to deliver. Um, we're likely not going to see Trey Lance play football again until next preseason. Literally. I mean, he's the third string quarterback behind Cooper Rush and Dak. Um, so we're just in wait and see mode with Trey Lance. And I, you're right. Anything could happen, which is both exciting and interesting. And it could be that at the end of next preseason, he gets cut because they realize, yeah, there's just nothing here. He's not developing. He's not a good player. But maybe Trey Lance comes in, gets a haircut, gets rid of the, the hair he's missing on the top of his head and just commits to being bald. Uh, and then works really, really hard and just gets after it and come next preseason is a much better quarterback ready to play um, and plays well and shows there's potential there. But frankly, we have no idea what can happen to Trey Lance because we've seen him play very little and he missed even the third preseason game this year because he got traded before that could happen. So I don't know what to make of uh, Trey Lance and no one really does. So we're just kind of in wait and see mode, uh, Joe. We'll see what happens. Jasper writes in. Uh, Jasper's got an interesting thought that I'm going to quickly shut down. Jasper says, hey, Zach's exposure to the visual cortex. I got to science that one up. I got to read about that one. That sounds interesting. Um, Jasper says, I don't usually ask questions, but I have an interesting theory I'd like to run across you. And it has to do with how guaranteed contracts work in the NFL. It requires the owners to put a certain amount of guaranteed money up front in cash. I know that's a huge topic of who can be owners and what some owners can do as far as their guaranteed contracts and they sign. But what about the why? How did the NFLPA come up with these terms? Or did the NFL? Uh, and why can't they just say, for this contract, we can assume that the broadcast revenue will constantly come with the age of the current CBA? My theory is that there's something behind the scenes with the concussion lawsuit, and it makes them think that with the revenue won't be the same, but I'm still baffled. Why don't teams and players just assume the money is coming? Your thoughts? Yeah, it is weird. Um, in baseball, Bobby uh, Bonilla, look, look him up, made like a million dollars for like 20 years or some crazy amount of time, knowing the money's always going to be there every, every time this year. And I don't know why guaranteed contracts in the NFL literally require you to have the cash on hand at the moment you sign the contract. I don't know. Um, it could have to do with, I mean, we've seen, look up Anthony, what's the name? Is it Anthony Brown? Is that really his name? Antonio Brown. Jesus, gosh, my brain is getting old. Antonio Brown and the Albany Empire. That's where the, the other sound, the E sound was. The Albany Empire uh, were bought or sold the majority share to Antonio Brown, and he didn't pay the bills. So players weren't getting paid. And I think the NFL never wants to have a situation like that where a player signs a guaranteed contract then never gets the money he's owed. Um, but that would never happen anyway, I think, in the NFL. So I don't know what's going on there. Certainly, I don't think it's has to do with concussions. That's just out of left field. And uh, I think maybe it has to do with the NFL owners being cheap. Um, but I would imagine that rule was made. You got to have the money on hand 
by the that was a demand from the players saying we want it, the money to be there. If we're going to sign a guaranteed contract, we need the money there. Um, if you're going to guarantee it, let's see it. Something like that. I'm not sure, but it's it's weird. Um, I, I honestly hate that we can't just have fully guaranteed contracts throughout the NFL. Why can't every contract be, if you sign for this amount, amount, amount of money, that's how much you're going to get, whether you get hurt or not. It would really change everything. Teams would be more stingy, but players would probably win in the end. I'm not sure. I hate these incentive-based contracts where, um, and I think teams do that because they want players showing up and giving everything they have. And if we give you guaranteed money, we're not sure that you're going to show up and take it seriously all the time. And we got to have leverage on you to keep you working hard and staying motivated. But man, it's, it's so weird that like we see these contracts where this player is going to make up to this amount. It's like, well, they're going to make that amount. No, it's going to be, if things go right for them, they stay healthy they play every week, they reach their incentive goals, then they'll make that amount of money. But I hate this word. It's worth up to blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay. I, I just, NFL contracts in general, I don't feel like I've got a great grasp or understanding on them, to, to be totally honest. Like, I, I, the more I learn, I feel like the less I know about contracts in the NFL. Like, I almost need a lawyer to teach me how this all works. But, um, and that's just me being honest. Um, if that hurts my credibility, I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I'm, I'm straight up with you. I tell you exactly what I know. And I, as soon as I reach a limit where I don't know what I'm talking about, I try to tell you guys that. Um, so it's a it's a weird one for me, and I don't fully understand why NFL contracts are the way they are, and that's just the truth. But I don't think there's some conspiracy involving concussions. Uh, I don't think that's a problem for the NFL. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening, uh, Jasper. Lucas writes in and says, Yo, Zach, it's obvious that sports and football is your passion, but if you had to do a daily podcast on something besides sports, what would you choose? If I had to, first of all, I wouldn't have to. That's the beauty of getting to choose what you do for a living. Um, I I was talking about this the other day with my girlfriend, right? Like I have a job where it's, it's probably, I work more, it's probably harder, but I also don't ever have anyone telling me where to be doing what. Um, No one speaks meanly to me. No one sends me crappy emails. Uh, It's great. I guess I get a lot of feedback and, and write-ins from people that don't know me on YouTube and stuff. But, um, you know, I have a lot of friends in my life that work jobs, corporate jobs, and people are rude to them over email. People are just giant douche nozzles. And I never have to deal with that uh, directly in my inbox. I do have to deal with it on YouTube comments, but that can easily be ignored. I don't have to work uh, alongside people being mean to me. So I'm glad for that. Um if I did a daily show not about sports, not strong opinion sports, because this is basically going to become a daily show six days a week um, this football season, I could talk about life probably, um, although I don't think you want to see Zach talk about life six days a week. I think that would be pretty miserable. Like, I like Zach Schaumler talking. I want to bring that show back, hopefully when I have time soon. Soon meaning I have no idea when, but I'd like to do it again. Um, sports are great for a daily show because – there's a ton to talk about. I mean, I only talk basically about football, let alone other sports going on. I mean, there's just so much happening in the sports world every day. You can't fully keep up with everything. That's why I kind of have chosen. I like football. It's more of my niche and that's what I'm good at. So that's what people look for me for. Uh, and uh, that's what I do. But also talking about sports is so low impact, right? Um, when you talk about politics or, I mean, so many finance, like you can ruin people's lives. And I don't, 
want anything to do with that. You will never see financial guru Zach ever. Man, nope, no, no, no. Um, I see enough videos where I'm like, watch CoffeeZilla a couple times and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this kind of guru guy out there is saying what, saying who? Like it, weird to me. So um, I think sports are the perfect thing to talk about every day. I like doing it. I can use my personality to add some flavor to the show. Um, my other interest though, I love movies and I love video games. Like, let's be totally honest. I mean, I, you can't see off to my right, but I guess it's, that would be the left side of the screen for you. Cause you're mirrored. Uh, regardless, I've got a shelf here with 13 game consoles. Um, you know, three Wii's, a GameCube, three PlayStation threes, a ridiculous amount of video games and discs that I love couple PlayStation 2s. Like, I I love, love, love video games. I could talk to you all day about games as an enthusiast. I love them. Um, and uh, anyone who wants to write in about games, I could talk about it all day. I love them. I also love movies. My, like, I could see myself doing this as a side passion project. I don't know how I would get views doing it, but I'd love to watch a movie and talk about it. Like, go through the entire marvel cinematic universe and after every podcast sit down and record a podcast for like two hours about the movie about the characters about the writing about the plot points about everything i'd love to watch a movie once a week and do a podcast about it i couldn't do it every day because it takes time to digest and think about it and write about it and research but um games movies and sports are like my three favorite things on the planet uh on top of that i'd love to make travel content i i love um you know, I, I tried that in the truck. No one really liked it, so I didn't do more of it. Um, and I had a lot of problems along the way. Like, uh, literally affording equipment is a difficult thing when you're traveling. You know, if you're on a tight budget, making travel content is basically impossible. Um, but if I ever am rich someday, I'll take a week off during the off-season to go to Vietnam and film about Zach in Vietnam. I think that would be amazing. I love that. I would love to make travel vlogs. It'd be so fun. But it requires so much capital to do that. You know, you got to buy a flight, you got to buy a place to live, you got to buy better equipment, uh, you got to have the time if you need to work because you can't afford to not pay your bills if you don't record, you can't exactly take time off to go to Thailand to make a video you hope people will watch, right? But um, if I'm ever rich, the way I'm going to spend money is, is going to be so cool. Like I'm going to I'm gonna buy a van probably and uh, live on the big island and make some kind of little weird camp that I live out of. I'm going to go to all over the world and travel and make videos about it. Like, I think I would spend money in a really unique way. On top of, it would be really important to me if my bills are paid and I'm in a secure place financially, um, I'd love to help other people. You know, if I can have the privilege of making a good income where I'm, I'm financially um, in a good spot and I'm, I'm safe and I have all my needs met, um, I'd love to help people that are in a position I'm in now that are, hey, five grand for me would make a massive difference in my life. And if I ever have the extra five grand to help other people here and there, um, as someone right now who knows how much money, five grand would probably change everything for me. Like it's crazy how like small and a small amount of money could like help so many people. If I had 10 grand to give out every month, like I would totally do that. I'd love to help other people. I'd make videos about it so I could do, use it as a tax write-off and, um, you know, I, I hope that if I'm ever really rich, I would be someone who would give it back and help other people and pay it forward because um, I know what it's like to have things be tough financially. I mean, I did HVAC. I, I, I think I'm a real person. Unlike a lot of figures that do podcasts that kind of get aloof and removed from the real world, like 
the one benefit of um, the way my life has gone so far is I think I'm really connected to what it's like to be a normal, everyday human being. Like I saw a great video the other day, um, or I guess a meme. A fish was getting a CT scan, and they had to put him in like a um, a sponge so he could still breathe. And the comment was, "This fish has better healthcare than like half of America," and that's sad, but that's true. And people that have a great life and great money and great resources have no idea what it's like for the other half uh, out there. And I hope I never forget that. If I ever become what I want to be, which is really successful financially and have a massive show, I'm never going to forget that. And hopefully I can help people. And who do I want to help first? Probably my, my sister. I think I've, I've got an older half sister that could use some love. But after that, um, it'd be so cool to help people. Like, why not pay back the audience that supports me and, and makes me money? Like, I'd love to help random people here and there uh, that watch and listen to the show. That'd be so cool. So um, those are my dreams, like video wise. If I could make other content, which kind of what you asked, Lucas, like traveling, um, giving money to people, helping them, you know, pay your bills here and there, whatever, like some surgery you need, you can't afford whatever, whatever it is, right. Pay off your credit card. Like, I'd love to do that for people make content about that. I love to make content about video games. I love to make content about movies. Um, you know, all the games I talked about my collection off to the right, I haven't played most of them. I've never played the Fallout series. I own every Fallout game and every DLC because I'm a crazy maniac who collects them but never has time to play them. And so um, I love to play like the Assassin's Creed series. I've never played any of them, any of them. I would love to play through every Assassin's Creed game and one by one make a video about my experience. That'd be so fun, but you need time and money to do that. And right now I don't have any. So um, yeah, other content I'd like to make, that's the kind of stuff I'd love to do. And that'd be so fun to me, but um, that's years away. And even look, no matter what happens, like if I make really good money doing SOS, I'm not going to abandon SOS. I mean, it's just my favorite thing to do. So, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Th those are my thoughts, but hope you like that, Lucas. Um, Brandon, we read Brandon, Richmond, Optimistic Cyclones fan, Joe. Let's go to Adam. Adam says, hey, Zach, were there any NFL players you met growing up that inspired you? I couldn't help but get happy when you were talking about Randall Cobb. I grew up with his nephew, and Randall's a great guy. He'd always call his nephew after every game and give him pointers. He was a receiver. Back in the 2017 season, he found the time in his year to watch our film and make a hype video for our high school football team when we made the playoffs. That's so cool. Um, so there are any NFL players I've met? I didn't meet anyone until I was in high school. I met Trent Dilfer and, and Jordan Palmer uh, during the Elite 11 process. I wouldn't call those inspiring interactions. They were just coaching me. Um, it wasn't a big deal to me. It was just like, these guys are trying to help me get better as a quarterback. And that was interesting. But um, no, I, I actually can't say there are any, any, there's no NFL players I've met that were like an inspiration to me personally, like in real life, other than from a distance. Um, but the Randall Cobb story, that's very, very cool. And uh, it makes me like Randall Cobb even more. I always get good vibes from him. seems like the coolest uncle maybe. And actually that's technically what your story exactly is. He's a cool uncle. I mean, he literally comes across like that, a good dad and, a cool uncle, and it's cool to know that Randall Cobb is exactly that. So uh, that's awesome. Um, uh, did you say nephew? Yeah, nephew. Yeah, okay. Daniel writes in. Daniel says, Hi, Zach. So I was watching episode 568 where you talked about how Kenny Pickett wasn't allowed to call hot routes. Why wasn't he allowed to do that as a rookie? I assume it had to do with the lack of experience and or a lack of familiarity with the system, but I thought it might make might be great for you to elaborate on that. Thanks. Daniel, we can only speculate why Kenny Pickett wasn't given the freedom at the line of scrimmage to make changes and 
call hot routes, but I would imagine it had to do with they didn't want to put too much on his plate. He's already trying to read the defense and remember the playbook, and I think they just didn't want to overwhelm him. But, um, you know, Matt Canada, the offensive coordinator of Pittsburgh, I think made a mistake there because that's a thing he certainly seemed capable of last year. They didn't give him that freedom, which I think hurt the offense. And, uh, yeah, we'll never know why Matt Canada decided to not give him that freedom, but I think it was a mistake. I think he was able to handle everything on his plate. You watch, I mean, and maybe part of why he did so well mentally last year is because he wasn't overwhelmed, but I thought Kenny Pickett was easily very comfortable in that offense and, um, in fact, could have had more on his plate. But we don't know. We're not in the building. We have no idea. And I don't want to speculate too hard there, but I would imagine it's because they didn't want to overwhelm him with information and things to think about pre-snap. ASMR fan writes in and says, Hey, Zach, my name is Mia Castillo. I wanted to know why some teams get injured more than others in sports. Is it as simple as their training and nutrition, or is it more complicated? Does it have to do with play style, who they draft, their schemes, or just bad luck? The 49ers, Chargers, Baltimore, and the Giants always seem injured. Um, I can't speak to why specific teams are injured. I think all those reasons make sense. It could be preventative stuff. It could be, I doubt it's diet. Um, it could be because they're valuing different things than others when it comes to their medical analysis and the draft. Um, there's a lot of stuff there. But they, doctors in the NFL are very, very almost invasive in how much they evaluate your well-being as a person and your health levels. Um, the one thing I – the reason why I wanted to answer this question is not because I know the answer to it. I don't know why certain teams have – it just – it's a – honestly, it's probably bad luck. Um, but the one thing I will say is that there are preventative exercises to prevent your joints from getting injured, i.e. your knees or, um, like I do a daily exercise for my low back to help my low back, um, prevent injury and prevent pain. And when I, if I don't do the low back, which actually my girlfriend's a down, I haven't done the low back exercise, uh, in about a week, my low back hurts and it normally doesn't. So, um, there are lots of ways to train your body, to strengthen your joints and your knees. Like, uh, I believe it was during the quarterback show. You watch Patrick Mahomes do this specific drill to help strengthen your, uh, your, your knee to make it harder to tear your ACL. And there are lots of weird little silly exercises. For example, um, when I was playing quarterback, we would take a two and a half pound dumbbell. They're tiny little weights. They're not anything. And you do like little flutters at different points in your, uh, in your um, shoulder mobility, and it strengthens your rotator cuff, which prevents your shoulder from getting hurt when you throw. Everything in your body uh, has little ways you can exercise it and prepare them uh, and make it less likely for them to get hurt. Um, for example, my, I've never had an ankle injury in my life, partially because I spent most of my life on my the balls of my feet. Literally around the house, I would practice quarterback drills and stuff, like literally 24-7. I was always miming throwing a football, and I would therefore had was doing a calf raise basically all the time, and it really strengthened my ankles and my calves. And so I've got these massive, thick calves and really strong ankles that have never, ever gotten hurt, partially because I had them preventatively strengthened. So um, that's worth mentioning, ASMR fan, is that, or Mia, um, there are ways to prevent injuries with different workouts and uh, different movements. Zach writes in and says, Hello, fellow member of the Zach Horde. Hey, what's up, Zach? Zach with an H, though, so you spelled it wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Kidding. There's no way to spell it wrong. Um, 
Zach says, the last two years, I've noticed that the Lions have been on the upswing. Even when they lose, they seem to do well. Do you think they could go on a magic Super Bowl run in the near future? Yes. Short answer, yes. Uh, the Lions are growing and building. And I think before we talk about a Super Bowl, we should talk about maybe a playoff appearance or a playoff victory. Um, but definitely the Lions are on the upward trend. They've got a great defense. They've got a coaching staff I love. Great offensive line. Incredible young running back. I think Jameer Gibbs is going to be insane, and no one really realizes how good he's going to be. They've got a stud quarterback, Jared Goff. I think the Lions are in a great position to win. I know it feels weird to say because they've been a disaster for years, but their GM is doing a good job. Every foundational level of their franchise right now um, is successful. And uh, I think the Lions are headed towards really good things. But before we talk about Super Bowl, let's maybe focus on just a playoff appearance and maybe a playoff win. Mitch writes in and says, Greetings, Zach. I have a non-football question for you this week. Oaks Park, Wild Waves, Bullwinkles, or the Enchanted Forest? Here's what I want to know, Mitch. Do you know, you must know I'm from Portland, because I don't think Oaks Park is anything other than a regional thing uh, by, what's that bridge? The bridge in, the Selwood Bridge in, in Portland, Oregon. All right, Milwaukee, Oregon, technically? I'm not sure. Um, there's only one Oaks Park location, right? I know there's multiple Wild Waves. But because I've been to the one in Dallas, which is amazing. Uh, I went there with my friend Brandon, went and visited him. Fort Worth, Dallas, Texas, that area. <sighs> what a good sub. I love the suburbs. Um, I make fun of them a lot. I'm an, I'm an inner city kid, but um, the suburbs are undeniably comfortable and safe and have lots of cool amenities. And the, the suburbs of Dallas are, wow, a lot of good stuff there. Um, I've only been to Oaks Park and Wild Waves. I've never been to. Maybe I've been to Bullwinkle. Is that the one with like mini golf and go-karts and like an arcade style thing? That's fun. I love go-karts, but I honestly, Mitch, of all the things you listed, I would rather just go do go-karts, like high level, preferably outdoor go-karts. Like there are some tracks in Arizona, in Texas, in Florida, the Carolinas have good go-kart tracks. Like I want to do, I want to feel like I'm driving an F1 car in a go-kart. Like, we're on a high-level track with lots of turns, not just a big circle, not a simple thing, but, like, no, like, big, long corners, and I want to feel like I'm driving an F1 race, honestly. Um, of the things you listed, though, I've never been to the Enchanted Forest, which, again, as far as I know, that's an Oregon thing, which why, Mitch, I think you must either be from Oregon or know that I'm from Oregon. I've done research. I'm not sure, but um, Oaks Park was something I did a lot as a kid. We had a Every year there would be a field trip uh, from David Douglas uh, School District to Oaks Park. I went there a lot. It was really fun. Um, could never do – there was like certain things you couldn't do unless you paid extra for it. So I didn't do that. But I did the roller coaster, which has a total loop, and that was really fun. Of the things you listed, I would probably say Wild Waves. Um, I just – man, uh, Wild Waves is awesome. I love getting wet. It's a weird thing to say. But I love the water. <laughs> and uh, – I, Wild Waves in Dallas like blew my mind, but I I prefer roller coasters. But none of the things you listed are big roller coasters. So my thing, roller coasters and go karts, not on the list really here. Uh, and I'll do whatever I can to get on a big roller coaster or do go karts. I like going fast. I like extreme, exhilarating things. And um, you know, I, what's the the Enchanted Forest? I've always heard about it, but I've never done it. What even is that? I should probably ask. I think my girlfriend has been there, so she would know. But I should ask her. Um, I have no idea. And uh, maybe someday I'll go when I visit family back in the Oregon area. Let's end the show today with Jonah's writing. Jonah says, hey, Zach's optic orbs. 
I know you're usually more interested in quarterback contracts, but as the 49ers have the cheapest quarterback room in the league, they're trying to pour big money into Nick Bosa right now. Do you think putting $30-plus million a year into a good pass rusher is a good idea, or will it limit their long-term ability with the rest of the roster? The Niners have too much talent that won't stay cheap for much longer, like Brandon Ayuk, Brock Purdy, Talanoa Hufanga, etc. I know Nick Bosa is obviously a generational player, but how valuable is it to have a few stars at the expense of a lot of the rest of the roster? Here's how I'm going to answer this. It makes sense to pay a quarterback big money because the game revolves around them. But think about the things that revolve around the quarterback. Left tackle and defensive end. It makes sense that the number one way to combat a great quarterback is to have a great pass rusher getting after that quarterback, i.e. it makes sense to pay them. Like, how do you ruin the day of Patrick Mahomes? You have TJ Watt on your team. You have Nick Bosa on your team. You have Miles Garrett on your team just getting after the quarterback play after play. Those guys, the few that can destroy a quarterback and ruin their day are incredibly valuable. So um, it makes sense to me that if quarterbacks are going to get paid a lot of money, the guys who get after quarterbacks and make their life harder, the defensive end, should get paid as well. Everything revolving around the quarterback. Receivers are are valuable. Defensive ends are valuable. Left tackles are valuable. Um, And for a reason, because... Guys who can make the quarterback's job easier or more difficult, they're worth a lot of money in the NFL. And so um, paying Nick Bosa makes sense to me. Uh, And I don't think, no matter what Brock Purdy does, he's not going to sign a $100 million deal, I don't think. right? Like I don't think he's worth that much. At best, if Brock Purdy's really good this year, he's worth $20 million a year. So maybe five years, $100 million, that's it right there. But I just don't. I don't, I don't think it makes sense for the 49ers to give Sam Darnold or Brock Purdy a, a massive contract uh, like they did Jimmy Garoppolo. Like that was a, the contract they gave Jimmy Garoppolo was out of desperation rather than out of rational thinking. So, um, you know, Nick Bosa, he's pretty valuable. And the same way there's not a lot of Patrick Mahomes walking around the NFL, walking around planet Earth, there's just not a lot of Nick Bosa's available. Even his brother Joey isn't Nick, right? His own brother isn't as good as him. There's just not a lot of players who can do what Nick Bosa can do getting after an opposing quarterback, and so, therefore, he's incredibly valuable and totally worth the money. All right, guys, uh, that's all I have for today. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, Was that short or not? Let's look at the timer. Let's find out. No. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely not a short episode, so... What do I know? Guys, I love you. I appreciate you. Hope you have a great day. I'll talk to you later. And uh, ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.